It's time for some tough love. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. We have a very special live episode lined up for you today. We're going to go behind the curtain and see what's going on with Democrats' communication strategy, for better or for worse, and how vital this messaging is in the battle to save our democracy. My exclusive guest is the Fixer for Fixers, an expert in strategic and crisis communications who has never himself given an interview like this. In a minute, you're going to meet the nephew of Oscar de la Renta, a race car driver, Hollywood screenwriter, Harvard Law lecturer, philanthropist, and multinational, this is just to name a few of his titles and descriptions, Carlos, Carlos Alvarez Araños. Carlos, who was once a Republican, took his incredible life experience and built a storied career in Democratic strategic communications, advising top business leaders, politicians, and governments around the globe. He was on the brink of a retirement of sorts when Trump took office in 2016, and that's when he realized that the threats we were facing demanded him to stay in the fire and put his expertise to work. During the Trump administration, Carlos orchestrated the media campaigns behind some of our highest profile and highest stakes battles against fascism and authoritarianism. From the clearing of Lafayette Square to the Trump NDA case, yes, that would be mine, um, to the Trump impeachment trials and the development of the absolutely pivotal January 6th committee. I met Carlos in the trenches of this work to protect democracy, and he's been an invaluable and trusted advisor to me. You've probably heard me say that even with all of your beautiful encouragement from my appearances on this network, I was very hesitant to put on a podcast, but it was the tough love from Carlos that pushed me into the light of this show, and I'm so grateful that he did. Those of us fighting for freedom desperately need to get better at telling our stories. The whole world is counting on us. I'm so honored to be joined by Carlos Alvarez Araños. Welcome to Lights On, Carlos. Thank you for having me, Jessica. I'm excited to be here. So I want to start just by kind of getting into how we met. I, as some of our viewers know, if, if they're new and maybe you're hearing this for the first time, I'll give a little refresher. I, of course, worked for the Trump campaign in 2016, having been a uh, brainwashed um, Republican and supporter of Trump and, and the right of American politics had a very harrowing experience, ended up suing on my own without a lawyer in 2017. And this started this incredible journey where I ended up battling the Trump non-disclosure agreement, um, having initially a $50,000 judgment against me, having to have it overturned, filing two class actions. And in the course of this, I was joined by a small and then building legal team. And that expanded legal team came to include this incredible nonprofit organization called Protect Democracy. And um, if you don't know about them, you're gonna find out a lot about them in this episode. They have been, in my opinion, at the forefront of the battle to save our democracy using our legal system, using the courts, demanding accountability through the application of laws. And when I was joined by this expanded legal team at, at Protect Democracy, that's when I met Carlos, who was working as a strategic communications director for Protect Democracy. He came on and did strategic comms for my case and has done so much other phenomenal work, really been behind the scenes, pulling the strings, like I said, on some of these highest profile and and ahead of the curve attempts to um, demand accountability for Trump and his authoritarian actions through the legal system. Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, I was inspired to join that effort by Linda Chavez, who uh, was the highest ranking woman in the Reagan White House uh, and I'm a, a cabinet appointee of uh, George W. Bush. She didn't make it into the cabinet, but she was appointed. And Linda uh, saw the threat, uh, as I did. Uh, we uh, discussed Protect Democracy, this uh, organization that was kind of like the Avengers for politics. There was uh, people yeah. from both sides of the aisle who banded together to uh, top lawyers in the country, uh, led by Ian Baston and Justin Florence. Um, and they really pulled together an amazing team to, to undertake some of this work. And 
the result of that, I think a lot of people saw in the news, you know, everything from the wall of moms and the protests in Portland uh, in the efforts to prevent uh, militarization or the or the the deployment of federal agents around the election, uh, to the you know the the resistance against Bill Barr's efforts to politicize the Department of Justice, particularly after Lafayette Square, um, um, and through and then on, on the impeachment efforts, and people saw the uh, uh, the transition effort to to get uh, Emily Murphy to to certify the transition. All of that work, uh, you know, this organization undertook uh, to bring experts to bear, to bring expertise to bear, and make sure that we were fighting uh, an effective battle against uh, the onslaught that we were facing. Um, me personally, I had moved to Colorado to write a book, and I started a transportation company on the side. And to this day, it's a company I own and I love. But I saw Trump, and I saw the threat, and I said, um, you know, uh, I, in talking to Linda, we, I, I immediately understood that I had a responsibility that, you know, it's one of those moments where you either put up or shut up. And, and if you don't, later you come to regret the fact that you didn't show up when the country needed you. So um, I've always stayed behind the scenes. I'm very excited to be talking to you today, but this is not something I normally would do um, because my job really involves, um, uh, you know, trying to build strategies and to understand how we communicate our case to the American people. And, and, and that's usually, those stories are usually best told by others. And it's kind of my job to, to, to produce that narrative as best I can. Yeah, I, I would love to hear more from you about how you build those strategies behind the scenes. And I love this theme. This is a theme that I am always trying to highlight here. And that's that we're, we're living in this moment, just like you stepped back from this, what was going to be this comfortable kind of, you know, life of a writer. And you said, oh, my God, I see this threat that we're facing with Trump. Um, and I need to get back into the fire and put my expertise to work. Can you describe um, to me what what the way that that my um, my mission, once I woke up to how I had been brainwashed and how dangerous Trump was, my mission so beautifully aligned with protect democracy because they were, first of all, they were using the legal system. They were demanding accountability. I mean, way, way before anybody else was doing this. Ian Basson, who you mentioned, who was a, a, a White House counsel under Obama, and you mentioned this was a bipartisan group of, of you know, experts and legal scholars that came together to form this, this group, Protect Democracy. But he was so ahead of the curve. I mean, he founded Protect Democracy in 2017, mm -hmm. well before, you know, well before January 6th, well before the impeachments and all of the really... Um, overt authoritarian attempts that we saw during the Trump administration, he saw the science. So um, talk to me a little bit about how, I mean, that was a huge part for me. Even when I was losing my case, I wanted people to know about it because I wanted to, them to see me as a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you worked to, to highlight the work of Protect Democracy, to highlight kind of just the moment that we're all living in, in history, and the demands upon us to, you know, to see what's going on and get to work. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's what's interesting about expertise is I think we live in an age where expertise is devalued. But those of us who've worked a long time and who've lived sort of in the trenches of politics and, you know, in, when I when I worked on on in my academic life, um, you know, I, I became an expert on the Third Reich and the rise of Hitler. And those of us who work in this uh, in this field um, and who've grown to become experts through experience, all had I think a, an inner sense that there was something deeply wrong and deeply different uh, once Trump was elected. And then and and we all saw the downstream possibilities of that election. Um, and I don't think. Uh, there was a, such a, a possible overreaction. I think this was, it was this was immediately clear that this could be sort of democracy ending, and that um, and then it, it almost in some ways became worse more quickly than than one could have predicted, uh, and you started to see some very clear signs of of sort of rising fascist tendencies, not just in politics, but uh, you know, but metastasizing into society and the way people talk to each other. Um, and the increase in racist incidents and the increase in, in gun violence and an in interest in guns. So I think we, we saw, if you looked at it holistically, you understood that this was not just politics. This was inspiring people, uh, you know, the Proud Boys and all of those groups and et cetera. And so, 
Ian, being an expert uh, in the in the in the field, I think immediately assessed it. I wasn't there when he did that, but um, but I'm glad he did because what he did was assemble again uh, an Avengers type team of lawyers, uh, communicators, and um, and lobbyists to try to get at at some of the you know what he called phase one, just the, the protecting against the worst. Um, and then entering into phase two and phase three, sort of medium-term rehabilitation and then long-term um, uh, correction, right? How do we get this country back on track? And I think one of the things that's been happening is that the Republican Party has had a very long-term uh, sustained campaign that has led to this. Uh, we're talking about, you know, starting in really the, the 1960s, some of, uh, some of the prelude to what's happening now in the aftermath of the, of the sort of the civil rights victories, I think mm -hmm. the right started building a strategy for this. And so Democrats were building a response in trying to, you know, trying to answer something that had been in the works for over 40 years. And that meant that they were immediately shorthanded um, and that, I mean, I'll give you an example. If you think about it on the economy, just Republicans own the narrative on the economy. Everybody in the country thinks that Republicans are better for the economy. If you pull on that, I think you get like 60% of Americans telling you that Republicans are better on the economy. And because they tell you that over and over again, right? Exactly, right? And they say it in very simple and effective terms. But the reality is from 1928, to 2008, there were 40 years of Democratic presidents and 40 years of Republicans. The average economic growth under the Democrats was twice as much as under the Republicans. And, if, and you know, and the, the, the fact that always gets me is that if you had invested $10,000 in the S&P 500 in 1928 and left it in the market only under Republicans, you would have ended up with $50,000 if you didn't count the Great Depression. But you would have ended up with $311,000 if you had left it in only under Democratic administrations. And so, to see such a delta in the performance in terms of what really happened versus what the Republicans have been saying this whole time. It's the same thing on deficits. I mean, you saw Kevin McCarthy today talking about how the government needs to spend less money. Well, Bill Clinton balanced the budget and then, um, uh, you know, George W. Bush brought us into $1.3 trillion deficits and then Obama brought us back down to $400 billion deficits, basically cut it by two thirds. And then, um, Trump brought it back up over a trillion dollars, and now Biden has just recently set the record for the largest deficit cut in a single year in history. And you think about, again, the impact of this messaging and the reality that it creates versus what's really happening and what people understand. And it becomes clear that this fight is a communications fight. We are 50 years behind the ball on the left. And then you have the additional complication that Democrats, uh, you know, archetypally, uh, because of who they represent in, in sort of a, as a, in a structural sense, they only have to be wrong once to be called liars, whereas Republicans, because of their sort of... Shamelessness. Um, uh, yeah, and toxic, you know, you, that toxic culture, they yeah. can be, they can lie all the time and they never get called on it. And so there is a discrepancy in how people, how the Double parties standard. are judged. Yeah. And that creates an additional challenge. And so my role and you talked about how you start building narratives against that. The first thing you do is you try to connect one thing to the, the other things. You try to start building longer, sustained narratives because Democrats have historically, you know, you win one victory here and then you win one victory there and, and they're never married to each other and they're never building momentum. And my, my view as I came in to protect democracy was we need to start telling a unified story. And much to the credit of the AFL-CIO and, and uh, uh, Mike Pot Pothorzer and his team, there was the first time, for the first time in American history, I think there was a real alignment among groups that were, again, on all sides that were concerned about the rise of fascism. And I, I think something in the order of 400 groups and Time Magazine covered this. They called it the secret bipartisan campaign that saved the 2020 election. Uh, Protect Democracy was a central player in that. And the idea was to yeah. organize around unified messaging and start telling a single story rather than having these disparate victories that never account that never amounted to an aggregate that that we could use um and so again we are so far behind and then the republicans have been very good at simplifying messaging i mean I, i'll tell you a story I, I saw some messaging that was being developed uh in the 2020 election and 
and I ran it through a, a grade level, re, you know, assessment. And it was reading at a 12th grade level. And you realize that the average American doesn't read at that level and doesn't really it, it process information at that grade level. And so you're, you're talking, but you're not being heard. Whereas if you run any Republican messaging uh, through that same assessment, you'll realize that they are really speaking the language of their listeners and, yeah. and making sure that their audience understands what they're saying. Yeah, it's very simple language and it's repetitive. It's the mm -hmm. re repetition of very, very simple, um, you know, nomenclature. One, one thing that I talk about all the time, Carlos, is how for me, I mean, you could, you could go into issue by issue and you could talk about the economy and that is certainly one that they have just hijacked. They have, they have sold themselves as ch the champions of the economy when what I have come to understand once I've educated myself, like you're describing, is that, you know, the, the Democrats do all the economic cleanup, then the Republicans come into office, benefit from the work that the Democrats have done, take mm -hmm. credit, create havoc, and then a Democrat gets, you know, office into office again and gets blamed for the mess that the Republicans make. Exactly. It's a repetitive <laughs> story. And it's interesting because if you go on Capitol Hill, even to this day, even going into 2024, and I think it's a major issue, it's like Democrats will tell you that they need to change the way they talk about their policies and, they, and, and that they have better ideas and et cetera. And then, then Trump happens. And it, it reminds you that really the firmament of truth is so far removed from the, from the national political conversation of the United States that it's really a very relative concept in this point in time. And truth should be an absolute, but it is not. And the reality is that if you repeat something enough, and especially if you appeal to the emotion of your listeners and to stuff that's deep-seated, because, to, I mean, slavery is two lifetimes ago in the United States. The slavery map and the electoral map overlap in, in so profound ways that you realize that this country hasn't really moved on from its history, nor will it anytime soon. And so there's a lot of embedded emotion, and the Republicans know how to trigger that. Yeah, and and the Democrats don't. Uh, and frankly, they don't always listen to the people that recommend a more affirmative communication style. I, I, I count myself among that. Um, those voices get sidelined in, in, but because of an ideal that I think is worthy, which is the ideal of integrating the party and bringing a lot of different people together. I think the, the Democratic Party wants to be a party for a lot of different people. and. But what I, that also leads to is like the meeting before the meeting, right, where everybody's trying to agree on what they can or can't say. And by the time that's happened, the Republicans have already put out 50 messages. They're 10 and, steps ahead. Exactly. Yeah. And then with yeah. Trump, you know, it's one scandal after the other. And you, by the time you answer the first, you know, uh, he's, he's chaos, moved on. So you can't exactly. keep track. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, there well, what are you were saying about. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say what you were saying about pulling on heartstring, heart on the heartstrings. I think that that's really at the heart of it for me. What did it for me? And I'm really curious to hear what brought you around because I know you used to be a Republican too. We both we both voted for George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. um, that for me, it was freedom. I mean, you could you could insert any facts here, there, or wherever. I was so mesmerized and trained to believe that. Republicans were the Freedom Party and Democrats were the anti-Freedom Party. And yeah. that gave me a permission structure to excuse all kinds of nonsense um, and and turn a blind eye and not listen to my better angels so many times because I thought these communist Democrats are coming after our freedom. So we mm -hmm. just have to do everything we possibly can to stop these dangerous people. Right. Um, and yeah. I think finally, I mean, that was it. It was freedom. I mean, there's nothing it is. I've talked about this before. It's the most basic human desire is to yeah. be free. It's, free it's just to be free left alone yeah. right and, and it's a yeah. uniquely american thing and it's a beautiful thing but the reality is that for me it was the realization of the hypocrisy right george w bush came into office and passed two tax cuts that took a balanced budget that would have paid off the national debt of the united states by 2011 if it had been left alone and he blew it into up into through trillion dollar deficits and two wars everything that the republican party that i believed in was supposed to be against right? Yes. Fiscal responsibility went out the window. I mean, we invaded a country that had nothing to do with the attack on 9-11 just for, you know, under false premises and, and then defended it in front of the world. And seeing Colin Powell 
on TV defending the indefensible. Really, that was a big moment for me. But honestly, it's, you know, I'm still a centrist. My ideal in life is I want to be left alone. I want the government to pay its bills. I want us to have low interest rates and easy access to housing. And, and I want equality and equity, in especially of opportunity. I want people to be able to. But frankly, the other thing that's been going on for me in terms of is, is what's happening at the border, for example. This country needs labor. It needs people to come in and work. And I'm, I'm sorry, but if you walk 2,000 miles across a desert and with gangs all around and with danger all around you, pursuing a better life, carrying your children on your back, um, I'm going to be a fan of yours and I want to let you in to come and work here and build that better life here because I know that you're also going to drive the rest of the economy forward. And, um, and hate in its simplest forms, I know it appeals to a lot of people, but it, it really doesn't to me. And so when I saw... When I saw the immigration crisis, and then when I saw John Boehner, I mean, we we all talk about immigration today, but the, most people don't realize the Senate had passed a comprehensive immigration bill that President Bush would have signed, and John Boehner never brought it up for a vote. But had he brought it up for a vote, it would have also passed the House and become law. Was so, that the Gang of Eight back under yeah, Obama? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, this was under no. George W. Bush. This oh, was under George John W. Bush. Was, okay. Yeah. And, and George W. Bush had expressed that he would sign that bill. And so John Boehner single-handedly prevented comprehensive immigration reform. And now you're seeing There's all this no nonsense. There's no efforts. They just use it as political theater. Exactly. And so to me, to see the hypocrisy, to see the lying, like I just, and frankly, like, I want to be led by people that I aspire to be like. Um, and when I see Barack Obama... I don't always agree with President Obama on everything, and I was very proud to to to, to help his administration uh, and to join the Department of Defense when he was in office. But I don't I don't always agree with him. But he reminds me of somebody that I would aspire to be like. He, he his values, his his way of being. Um, you know, I have this funny thing where I think. Uh, the, the cool kids became Democrats and then the kids who hated them became Republicans. And it just kind of feels that way. And frankly, I want to be inspired. I want to live a life where I'm seeking positive examples, where I'm uh, bringing more people under my tent, where I'm sharing. I'm a Dominican. In, 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 I live in Colorado and, and I notice the feeling of being alone and being in a place where there's not a lot of diversity and then I just went home last week and I remembered how great it is to be surrounded by people of all colors and faiths. And, and I've worked and lived all over the world. And so for me, the value of that uh, and the fact that most Americans don't travel, that, that we don't have that kind of integrated society that the melting pot promised us Absolutely. is a disappointment. Absolutely. And so ultimately, I want to be inspired. And the Democrats... Um, are the only party right now that that's trying that has a positive message. By the way, the Republican Party literally does not have a platform. They don't have a set of ideas that they're willing to write down. Their platform is and, Donald Trump is our God. Right, <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you know, I don't want to be part of any group that includes Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Wolbert. Like, I don't need to know anything else. I do not want to participate in any group that those two are members of let alone Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Jim Jordan, all of these characters, Matt Gates, uh, the guy that just got indicted, Santos. I mean, it's a collection of people that I just would never want to be associated with. So I, as I always say, the party left me, my ideals, my belief in a limited government, my belief in being left alone and freedom, as you mentioned it, is better represented by the Democratic Party. They've shown more fiscal responsibility. They've shown more heart. They've shown more openness. They've created more jobs. They've actually done the work that I've always aspired my country to do. And yeah. the Republican Party is just being supported by neo-Nazis and feeling like they're, um, you know, like they're winning. And I don't know where that That's leads. That's where we are. Anybody. Yeah. Yeah. The choice is the choice. As far as I'm concerned, it's so stark. It's so stark. This is not a, it is not a point in history where we can be like, oh, both sides are bad. Right. When I was on the other side, that would be if somebody talked to me about politics and I didn't necessarily want to let them know that I was a Republican or a Trump supporter, I would say, oh, they're all bad. They're all all politicians mm -hmm. are yeah. bad. And I hear that now so often from and I know it's, a, it's such a tell to me because this is the way they've been trained. And it's not only um, you know, it's not only what comes it, it, 
it, it is to me at the heart of authoritarian propaganda. I have friends from, you know, countries like Russia and Belarus who who know this tactic so well. The mm -hmm. fascists want you to think that everybody is bad. Yeah. And when I grew up in the Dominican Republic, their corruption and their behavior. Yeah, I grew up in the Dominican Republic under a guy named Joaquin Balaguer, who was the president, who had been vice president to a tyrant, uh, to Trujillo, who was a major dictator. And I grew up, I grew up in the environment that Donald Trump is trying to create, and that Ron DeSantis is trying to create. I grew up yeah. in it, and I know what it feels like to see politics as a naked exercise of corruption and power. Um, and it sucks. And I, I honestly wish I could mind meld with every citizen of the United States to let them know you do not want the result of deteriorating your institutions to the point where you just assume that they're going to operate on quid pro quo basis ac across all areas. Right. Um, and once you lose the, the, the sort of your faith in government and once you lose the autonomy and integrity of your institutions, you can't get them back. It, and so I just warned the United States consistently, you do not want to be in the situation I was in when I was growing up, watching the politics that I was watching, uh, because none of us would feel like this was America if, if that came to pass. And, and the, the, the proximity that we have to it right now is incredibly uh, crazy to me. Yeah, it's so close. I mean, the fact that there is still, I, I talk about how I don't, you know, we are in the majority, the sane ones in this country, the ones that understand the threat, I think are in the majority, but there is still a far too large um, portion of this country that just doesn't recognize it. It's because they're bombarded by this gaslit propaganda 24 seven. They think that the freedom fighters are the corrupt, you know, politicians. And they think that the corrupt politicians are the freedom fighters. And I know Carlos, you have some, some real thoughts and that's what I really want to get your input on onto how Democrats can improve their strategy. One, one thing that I've noticed, and I'm like, more of this, please, is the reclaiming of the freedom platform unapologetically mm -hmm. from people like Josh Shapiro, Mara Healy, um, Joe Biden in his reelection video. What was the theme of it? Freedom. Mm -hmm. I'm like, thank you so much. And I've heard even just in the last gosh, I think in the last hour, but definitely in the last week, I've heard conversations on, let's just say, you know, left-leaning MSNBC about this freedom platform and the reclaiming of it. And they're so, they're so intellectual, these conversations. And, and they say the Republicans version of freedom is like, they're trying to analyze it. I'm like, the Republicans are not, they don't have any version of freedom. It's just pure fascism. Their followers do not understand how the wool is being pulled over their eyes. Mm -hmm. Banning books, you know, taking away women's bodily autonomy, um, you know, gerrymandering the hell out of state so that people don't have representation. None of this is freedom. It's just that they don't understand. They're so bombarded by the, the counter narratives that they don't mm -hmm. know what's what. Um, and the real, like you said, representatives of freedom in this political sphere that we're living in right now, the only ones are the Democrats. How can the Democrats do a better job? And do you think they are doing a better job of claiming the freedom platform or any other platform that you think they need to win? Well, I think um, the freedom platform is tough because what Republicans have successfully done uh, since they were known literally since the Civil War, essentially, is that they've equated freedom with the freedom to hate, uh, the freedom to exercise hate and to exercise power and to be able to, you know, govern through through those means. And so the history of slavery obviously being a very obvious one, but then also the, uh, the internment of Japanese Americans. I mean, you've seen example, and then through the, the lynching of Emmett Till and, and, and the whole history of the United States, uh, freedom for, for white Americans has come to represent their ability to hate and, go, and, and use power to suppress other people. That is a, a common theme across that entire history. Um, and, but freedom as empathy, freedom as love, freedom as, um, you know, as community, those concepts are, are, are still very young in this country. And so it's difficult to, to stem the tide on that uh, except through leading by example and through generational change, which I think is our greatest hope. If you look at Gen Z and millennials, they're much different than the baby boomers 
or the greatest generation on all of these issues. And I think as people um, become more accepting, I think we're going to see generational change in our politics as well. That is not to say that other messages won't rise. They will. And other challenges will rise. But I do think that the idea of freedom as the freedom to exercise your hate or freedom to exercise your power is, is slowly changing. What the Democrats need to do, though, I mean, I'll give you an example of why Democrats fail. Um, and it's the archetype. The idea is the Democrats are soft and the Republicans are hard and then, you know, hard and simple. And they tell you a very straight thing that you you don't need proof for because it feels true. America's yep. the greatest country sounds in the good. world. Feels yeah, good. It's, it sounds yeah. amazing. America's the greatest country in the world. It sounds amazing. If you look at the rankings for things that countries get judged on, America is usually not in the top 20. And it is in public education in 1976, the United States was number one. It is not in the top 20 today. That's a massive decline. And yet that phrase will get you just as good a response today as it would have in 1976. And so we're facing a challenge of a division between truth and, and what's obvious to some of us and then the, the emotions and what feels resonant to, to some others. And, and that's very tough to deal with when your messaging has to account for everyone all the time, because that's the thing that Democrats are trying to do. They're trying to make sure they don't offend anyone at any point with any message that they put out there. And that really... <laughs> It's tricky. It's a, it makes it extra difficult, you know, and I'll give you an example. And then the Republicans are also very good about playing offense. So Joe Biden uh, is old. Donald Trump is four years, I think, younger than Joe Biden. And he's also old. Um, he colors his hair so he doesn't look as old. And so from a communications perspective, you know, you look at the situation and you say, yeah, there is a perception problem with the age thing, right? Yeah, he colors his hair and his skin. He colors oh, yeah. well, his no, it's, it's unbelievable because he actually <laughs> looks like what he is and nobody seems to, everybody seems to be like, oh, he's orange, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> but, but my point is that imagine, it, it, Joe Biden allowed that narrative to dominate him. And now everybody thinks of Joe Biden as old and senile. But imagine if Joe Biden, rather than accepting that narrative, had come out in his inaugural address in what would then be called the grandfather speech and said, yes, I'm old, I'm a grandfather. And here's why that's good, because grandfathers remember what it felt like after the Great Depression when we were in an economic crisis, right? Grandfathers saw us build the interstate system and build our economy and keep and taxes, by the way, the top tax rate in the United States uh, was up to 94% during the war and then 70% through Reagan, right? So the biggest period of growth in this country had a top ta marginal tax rate that is twice as much as it is today. And yet we saw economic growth. So this idea that tax cuts create revenue has always been false. And grandfathers know that because we've, we were there, right? Um, we saw what this country can do when it bands together and in terms of innovation, in terms of technology and et cetera. And he could have gone out there and said, what this country needs is a grandfather, because we also remember what the rise of fascism feels like. We know and understand the consequences of a Cold War with China, which is an emerging possibility because we lived a Cold War against the Soviet Union. So grand a grandfather is what this country needs. More importantly, grandfathers plant trees that they will never enjoy the shade of. We know we care for our kids and our grandkids, and we're here to create a world for them and to use our wisdom that we've distilled through years of experience to generate that world. And Joe Biden could have owned the age issue like Ronald Reagan did when in the debate he famously said, you know, I won't hold my opponent's youth and inexperience against them when he was accused of being old. So Joe Biden could have done that and he could have owned that narrative and brought forth a real argument for why age and wisdom and experience are exactly what the nation needed in the aftermath of Donald Trump. Instead, he succumbed to it. And I mean, I saw him on 60 Minutes talking about um, age and basically saying it's fair game. It's fair game. You know what? It's not fair game. What We don't need a 35-year-old president right now that hasn't lived through the seismic global changes that we're experiencing. We need somebody like Joe Biden. If prior to becoming president... It's Absolutely crazy. invaluable. Yeah, yes. prior to becoming president, if you had asked me to name the top five foreign policy experts in the United States, I would have put Joe Biden's name on that list 
despite just as a senator, he was the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for many, many years. He understands the world. Look at how effectively he's managing Ukraine. Do I want somebody that hasn't been there and done that for that long? managing one of the potentially a global crisis? No. And so there are affirmative arguments that the Democrats can make on the age of Joe Biden that would actually have turned it into a positive. Positive, And and their failure to do that drives me crazy, first of all. And secondly, it it means that they're, they're just, they're allowing themselves to become victims and responsive to the Republican messaging, which means the Republicans are setting the table and the Democrats are eating whatever they put on it. And that is a very, very bad construct. And so to answer your question, Democrats need to start proactively uh, setting the table and, and, and setting the conversation and setting their priorities and owning the simplicity uh, message. This is who we are. This is what we believe. On abortion, by the way, such an opportunity to talk to women, not just about abortion, but by the way, a party that claims to want to stay out of your life wants to get into your uterus. If you can't message that effectively, I don't know where you're at, right? The age of your president, it's not a bad thing. The guy has been around a long time. He knows everything. Exactly. It's an asset. It's an asset. asset. It really is an asset. And so can we start making affirmative arguments about the assets we have and the love we want to bring in the community we want to build in the world we want to be excited to live in because by the way the main thing that really should drive messaging is okay imagine a world where every republican bill passes and people are marrying 12 year old girls in tennessee because that was legitimately a bill that the republican party of tennessee wanted to pass or there are no taxes on corporations or you can write off your entire private jet which by the way you can do right now because that was a law that Republicans passed. And meanwhile, imagine living in that world. Is that a world we want to live in? Uh, is that a life we want to live? Um, and I don't know. I just I, I'm very frustrated by the fact that Democrats haven't seized on like the greatest gold mine of material for effective messaging. Yeah. And honestly, they've never seized it once. And then when they do come out with like pithy hashtags. They're always so ridiculous that I just think, man, who is doing communications for the Democrats right now? It's a very, very frustrating, frustrating. Uh, frame for I somebody get, like I, I love where we're going with this. We're going to take, you gave us a perfect segue in planting trees to our sponsor. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Ben Micellis here. Breathe some life into your own backyard with FastGrowingTrees.com this spring. From shade to fresh fruit to privacy and natural beauty, let FastGrowingTrees.com help you plant your dream garden with their expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. FastGrowingTrees.com's plant experts curate thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties for your unique climate. Meyer lemons to evergreens and everything in between. Happy plants, happy home, right? But sometimes it's hard to know which plants will do best. No problem, because with FastGrowingTrees.com, you get customized recommendations based on your specific needs. Plus, their plant experts are always available to help keep your plants growing healthy through the season and beyond. No more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants around. With FastGrowingTrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. I love fast-growing trees because I found the Alberta peach tree I was looking for at a great price, and you will too. And with fast-growing trees, 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, you know everything will look great fresh out of the box. Join over 1.5 million happy fast-growing trees customers. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash lights on now to get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash lights on. That's fastgrowingtrees.com slash lights on. Now back to the show. Thank you, Ben. And happy birthday, Ben Micellis. It's his birthday today. <laughs> um, I want to get back to your frustration and, and just what, I mean, this is such a vital moment that we are in right now. We, we are f- dealing with these two men again. I mean, my God. 
God Almighty, we couldn't prosecute Donald Trump fast enough to prevent this terrorist, this tyrant from running for president again. And we are now faced with Biden versus Trump, likely. I mean, we can talk about DeSantis for a minute, but the guy is just making an absolute fool of himself. And I think, um, I don't know what you think, Carlos, but I think that Trump, I think Trump devours him in about two seconds. 100%. I think they just have to, they have to make him laugh <laughs> on stage once. And that, and that's probably the end of that. Um, no, I, I, I honestly, I don't, in terms of, I, you know, what, look at the default. I think this is a perfect example. The idea that we could default on the public debt of the United States and, and bring the country and lose 8 million jobs and that the Republicans keep using this as a, as a negotiating tactic, right? Um, what do you do about that? How do you talk about the default? Well, first of all, you have to make sure that the American people understand what it is. Because if the United States defaults as it stands right now, I don't think a majority of voters, A, understand what that means, and B, understand who caused it. And I think as long as the Democrats fail to message this properly, they are allowing the Republicans to consider it as an actual course of action because the Republicans are fairly confident that if, if they allow a default to happen, the American people will blame Joe Biden for Blame that. Biden. And the reason that they will probably successfully blame Biden is because Biden's communications efforts have been so lackluster that he's opened the door to confusion, the dark Brandon situation. All of these things have aggregated into a general dislike of Joe Biden. That's not just on the right, by the way. The center also feels hesitant about Joe Biden. You're not a fan of the you're not you're not a fan of the dark Brandon meme. No, I mean, I, I, I actually liked Joe Biden claiming it in the, in the correspondence dinner a little bit and playing off of it. But he should have done that way earlier and nipped it in the bud and, be, and turned it into an affirmative thing. He should have the day after it happened, he should have put those sunglasses on and said, hi, I'm dark Brandon and I'm here to tell you how it is. Uh, and and it, it, we, if I had been in that position, we could have built a massive campaign to turn that around. But honestly, you cannot let these people set the agenda because the problem is once they once they brand you, it's very difficult for you to unbrand yourself if you're Joe Biden. And now they can threaten you with default and it would be 50-50 and pick them if whether the American people would blame the Republicans for it or whether they would blame Joe Biden. So I don't think you're, you should be willing to take that risk. I think you have to run professional strategic communications. And by the way, what that means is you envision the world you want or the situation you want, and then you build a set of tactics, which are how you're, you're gonna get there. Strategy is where you're going, tactics are how you get there. And you everything you do aligns with that strategy. And I mean everything, you know, we are creating a vision. For, if you want to sort of use an example from regular life, it would be as if I if I told you, Jessica, just imagine the coolest old woman you can imagine, and then make every decision she would have made. It's a it's a really good strategic way to to get to where you want to go, because unlike a map where you have, uh, I'm sorry, unlike a set of directions where you just have to follow the directions one step at a time, it's a, more of a compass. It allows you to check in with that old woman and say. What would you do in this situation? And you can keep faith with her and life can throw whatever it throws at you. You don't have to be you don't have to be able to guess the future to know what she would do in any situation you find yourself in. And if you never make an exception, if you always keep faith with what the old woman would do, you're guaranteed to become her. And so in a, in a very similar way in politics, you have to set out your goal. Where do you want to end up? And then you have to make sure that in a in a single sentence, you can explain where you want to go, and more importantly, that that can serve you to tell you how to get there at any point of inflection on your journey. And the Democrats have failed to do that. They failed to centralize their messaging operation. They failed to speak with one voice. Hakeem Jeffries is struggling to become heard, right, because he's not the personality that Nancy Pelosi was. But even Nancy Pelosi struggles with sort of how do you make things short and sweet, right? Um, all of these problems sort of build on each other. And then they're, they're exacerbated tremendously by a culture that requires no one to be offended at any time by any message coming from the left, lest somebody be, you know, uh, canceled or whatever the case may be. And honestly, none of that is healthy. It, it means that you're very limited in what you can say and how you can say it. It means that you can't make 
statements with conviction, which, by the way, the, the leading driver of an emotional response is a conviction statement saying, this is what I believe when JFK was president, what he was very successful at was communications. And his achievements in office pale in comparison to his achievements in comms. And yet we remember him as one of our seminal presidents because he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And honestly, if you split that sentence out and you say, we're about to do a very hard thing that is probably going to kill some people and it's going to get us to the moon and it's really not going to achieve anything short term. And we're going to spend a lot of money when we can't be spending money. Then people say, oh, I don't, that doesn't sound good. Right. Yeah. And instead he found a way to communicate it in a way that brought people. Aspirational. Exactly. And Barack Obama, think about this. Barack Obama is one of the best public speakers we've ever seen. And yet I challenge you to remember a single line from any speech he ever gave except for the motto of his campaign. And it, to, to have had a president in eight years with that speaking capability, never deliver a speech that is as remembered as any of JFK's speeches or even Johnson's speeches. I mean, it's a crazy thing. And I always just assumed that he was hesitant to, to sort of lean into it. But man, what a beautiful world we might have created if Barack Obama had truly unleashed that gift to inspire people to a whole new vision of how we create a community in the United States, how we overcome racism, which was the issue that plagued his administration for obvious reasons and that he faced and had the most experience in facing. He could have really journeyed us to that place had his communications effort been as good as JFK's. Now, if you, I think if you ask, and I think I've seen a lot of interviews with him where he admitted that communications was an area of weakness structurally in his White House. Yeah. But honestly, we, as Democrats, we just can't keep failing on this. We yeah. need to inspire people to a better life because right now the haters are winning and they are winning big. And we are being governed by the, you talked about the better angels. We're being governed, not by our lesser angels, we're being governed by the demons. Darkness. And so- yeah. And the reality is that if we don't start communicating with people and reminding them of the lives that they aspire to themselves, what will end up happening is that half or a third of the population will go into a cycle of believing that all they can ever do to feel meaning is hate other people. And if we get to that place as a nation, then we're in a very scary place because uh, a third of the population will kill the other third while the other third watches, right? Uh, that's yeah. the history of Germany. That's it led to two world wars. That's that's who we are when we are in this place. And by the way, the last time wealth inequality was this bad was right before the Great Depression. Um, it's worse than it was in Egypt right before the Arab Spring. We are the structural condition of our country yeah, is in great danger. But if you think <laughs> about it, like if all you did was wake up tomorrow and have a government that could bring taxes for everybody back to the Clinton levels, that could cut the defense budget by 10 percent that could re eliminate the payroll tax cap and and create a truly universal healthcare system, we have a balanced budget. So we're like four or five decisions away from being able to get our ship back on course. And the fact that, and by the way, those four or five decisions, both parties have agreed to them at some point in the past 30 years. So it's not like these are crazy ideas that the Republicans would never come around to. These are things that we can do and that have been approved at some point because under Clinton, the Clinton tax rates were the tax rates and Republicans under Newt Gingrich agreed to them and the, the budget was balanced and all of that. And so we can have a government that works for all of us, but it starts with a vision, not just of America, but of our lives, of our future, that is aspirational, that reminds us that life is worth living, that human beings are worth sharing this planet with that the planet itself, by the way, I always laugh because climate change deniers, I'm like, well, wouldn't you want to at least err on the side of caution? Because if you're, <laughs> if they're wrong, we're all dead. You might like to have a place to still well, live. Exactly. If they're wrong, we are all dead. But if we're wrong, all we've done is clean up the air a little bit and clean the water a little bit and make See, everything a little bit more efficient. So, I'm going to, on the climate issue, this is one thing that I think, talk about simple messaging, mm -hmm. two words. If they could get away from climate change, and I understand it, but there's such bullshit around, you know, the denialism, two words. Do you like waste and do you like pollution? Right. If you don't like waste and pollution, 
then let's get all together and eliminate some waste and pollution. You right. know, do you want to breathe clean air? Like simple. Yeah. Do you want to drink clean water? Yeah, these are very simple concepts. And then we call it global warming. We call it climate change. By the way, warming as a word would probably poll very favorably with people. So if you say global warming to somebody who has no awareness of the technical problems with warming, they might say, I live in Canada. It feels cold. I want it to be warmer. That <laughs> From a communications Sounds perspective, <laughs> sometimes it's really as simple as that. Climate change. Okay, it's changing. And then somebody might say, well, the climate always changes, which is what the Republicans continue to say who deny it, right? And by the way, that resonates with people. It really does. And so we need to stop assuming that everybody knows everything. We need to stop yeah. talking. Like the way, the biggest arbiter of whether Democrats are doing well on messaging is Twitter, which is full of people who read into politics a lot. Yeah. who are very aware of the issues, people like your listeners, people who are tuned in. But those are not the people that are they voting are in all. our elections. And we cannot patronize people and say, I'm going to assume you know. No, we can. And by the way, doesn't mean we're calling them dumb because I run a transportation company that I built from nothing. And mm -hmm. I was busy every day. And up until Trump came into office, I was I who had worked in politics my whole career was not particularly paying attention because i didn't have time for that and so yeah. what what connects with people is aspiration what connects with people yes. is simplicity it's like look and you have to summon sincerity. them to do things yeah. sincerity summoning them to do things action what here's what you can do i've always advocated for democrats to build an app on the phone that tells you what you can do today to make this country a better place you know Little simple things that can that instead of asking people for their time just to listen to you, you're you're enlisting them on a mission. For example, uh, a national public service campaign where if you if you serve in public service, whether it's like the Peace Corps or the military, college is paid for. You know those kinds of initiatives where we're starting, we we, we remind each other that we're sharing this place because the reality yes. is, you know, I always tell people when you when you get away with something, which is a very sort of archetypally Republican concept is I want, I got away with it. No, what you really did is you transferred the problem to somebody else. If you litter yeah. and you got away with it, what you really did was make it somebody else's problem to have to pick up that litter or worse yet, have it end up in the ocean and become uh, our, all of our problems. Right. Um, yeah. Let's start owning personal responsibility and accountability. And I will say there is a problem majorly on the left culturally, which is this whole idea of wokeness is tracking poorly because we're, making arguments that really don't resonate with people. And you can pick what you talk about. It's my reminder to Democrats, right? You can talk about issues yeah. that everybody connects with and you don't have to be right to everyone all the time. You can say things yeah. that you believe and you should be able to disagree with people. And by the way, I heard a Democrat tell me recently that Eddie Murphy's comedy specials were horrible because they, um, you know, negated people or whatever. And I was like, no, Eddie Murphy was funny and he was of his time. Yeah. And we should be able to acknowledge that and say the world comedy, is changing. Comedy, but that, that... Has to, comedy has to be a safe space for discussion to, to exactly. agree. I mean, if it's a joke, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But if it's a joke, it's a joke. And so we have to be able to take a joke and we have to come back to a place where we can have rational conversations where we don't seem like the crazy ones. And right. that is a very important point because if you go to the red states in this country, right now Democrats kind of seem like the crazy ones. And it's amazing that they seem like the crazy ones when there are actually crazy people running the House of Representatives yes. right now. And so yes. to me, that, that delta is a delta that has to be fixed. It is an existential crisis because if the Democrats lose the White House in 2024, I do not see us recovering as a nation no. from that. Oh my God, it's over. Um, I mean, we, we narrowly, we averted an authoritarian takeover of, of the White House when yeah. Trump lost in 2020. I mean, if it happens, we can kiss kiss democracy goodbye. Yeah, but and, I want to I want to connect. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, finish. No, no. <laughs> no, no I was, yeah, if 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 that takeover happens, everything we fear to protect democracy would become true, and the mechanisms yeah. for preventing the worst would be eliminated, and we would have culturally made a choice that the end is our choice. 
And and people, I don't think people have fully internalized that because the threat of Trump has never been properly explained to the American people and the Democrats, not for their own sake, not for politics, not for majorities, not for power. We need to explain to the people of the United States that if yes. Donald Trump gets reelected, this country will end and it, it yes. will end yes. on our worst notes. And we will be really, really, really regretful of what we did as a generation to prevent that from happening. So people better wake up. They better start fighting to win. They better start ignoring some of this, you know, the far left talk about everybody being offended about everything all the time and start saying things they believe in, saying them squarely, making it simple for people to, making the choice very stark, which it is, by the way, anybody who knows, knows this is not real. It's a no-brainer. It should be made a no-brainer. Joe Biden needs yes. to own his age. He needs to own his limitations. And he needs to go out there and say, you know what? What this country needs is a tough grandfather who can guide it through its worst time ever. And, you know, and he needs to wake up. Everybody needs to wake up. We're on the cusp of a precipice. And if we lose, it will be because we forgot that you don't yes. always have to please everybody, but that you need to talk to the people who vote not the people who already support you and the Twitter sphere and the people who know those people already know we need to yeah. start communicating with Republican voters and telling them why they can make a better choice and why it's worth it for them, for their kids to, to find a better life and to yeah. enlist politics that help them do that and to not cut their own social security and Medicare and, and leave their grandparents and their uh, out in a, on a lurch. Right. All of these things are fairly simple concepts, and yet we, we seem to overcomplicate them, overthink them, and ultimately confuse people into voting for Republicans. And we are therefore enabling the, the destruction of our own nation, and it's high time that people wake up and start saying it like it is. Amen, Carlos. Amen. I want to connect some threads. I mean, you, you've touched on so many things. I'm going to connect some threads that you mentioned and then bring it back to how, how we came together. Um, because I think it's it's really special what you did for me, um, but you know you were talking about the freedom that this freedom that is the freedom that Republicans espouse is is a freedom to hate, and the, the to me the tragedy of it is that not nearly enough Republicans recognize it as a freedom to hate. I think freedom to hate is kind of an oxymoron, kind of like I think Christian nationalism is an oxymoron. Yeah, you know, exactly. if you're really free, there's hatred is fear. Fear is not mm -hmm. freedom. So right. I mean, they don't exactly. really go it's a, together. It's, it's a prison cell. Hate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but they've, they've, been, they've been so bombarded with this construct that there's enemy others out there. Right, that exactly. They have, um, these Republican propagandists have aligned freedom and hatred, which are mm -hmm. not are not, um, you know, things that really align. And so to the extent that we, I think, can invoke that that real sincerity of, of the stakes that we are facing and what is going to be taken away from humankind. I mean, literally this city on a hill is on the precipice of not being the light for the world if we do not do our work right now. Right now. And yeah. you and I met, I mean, you and I met when I, when I was in the midst of this battle. And I think I'm so grateful that you encouraged me to do this podcast, Carlos, because, um, you know, I had, I have done so much through my legal work. Like I said, I always wanted my legal work to be an example of what could be done. I started this as one woman with literally no support other than my dear mother, God bless her. I had nobody, no money, no nothing. And mm -hmm. I wanted my story to be an example. Um, you know, we have to get better at telling our stories and keeping, keeping the real sincere efforts and fights for freedom alive and showing mm -hmm. not only, um, you know, the, the passion of somebody like me who has woken up who sees the danger because I used to be on the other side. I recognize mm. how, how destructive it is and how blinded so many people still are. And, and to share that more, to put those stories forward, to be simple and genuine and, and realize the goal and the power that each one of us have. The Democratic strategists and the people running comms for the White House, they have an enormous amount of power, and I hope they are mm -hmm. listening to you today. 
they have enormous power and each one of us has enormous power. And I am so grateful for you, uh, Carlos, both for what you have, you have taught me and for these messages that you are sharing with us to wake us up. Well, you know, I, I just think either we're talking about the end or we're talking about the beginning. And I, I am an optimist mm -hmm. and I believe in this country. And I think we need to start talking about a new beginning where we build a community that we truly want to live in and live lives that are truly worthy of the opportunity we get through existence. I mean, the sheer improbability of us being here uh, on this planet and, and wasting the planet or wasting each other or wasting these 80 years that we get to, to really leave as much as we can of ourselves on the, for the rest of us, right? For humanity, to, to give all we can and then die with that dignity. If we forget that, then it's then life doesn't doesn't work anymore, and 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 mm -hmm. honestly, and everything breaks down. And I just don't want to see this country break down. I love this place, and I wanted to to deliver, as you said, on its on its best angel. So thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed uh, the conversation, and um, and and yeah, congratulations on the show. I'm so glad I got you on this. You're doing <laughs> such an amazing job. Thank you so much, Carlos. Thank you, Carlos Alvarez Aranios. Please follow him on Twitter. He is um, really just, you've gotten to know him through this hour and he's just been behind the scenes um, really doing the work. So grateful to have him on. If you are watching us or listening to the replay live or afterwards on YouTube, please also go over to wherever you get your audio podcasts and subscribe to Lights On with Jessica Denson. It helps spread the word. If you leave us a review and a rating, it um, really ticks us up so more people just know that the show exists. We're, we're still kind of in our beginning phase here and, and anything you can do to spread the word is, is so much appreciated. Um, I am still very much embroiled in a legal battle with the Trump campaign. If you would like to support that, you can go to thejessicadenson.com slash donate thejessicadenson.com slash donate. I, I appreciate that support. Anything you can give, if you can, so much. It's it's really been helpful to those of you who have supported me. Um, and until next week, thank you so much for being with us. We love our luminaries here on Lights On and shout out to the Midas Mighty.